Welcome to the show, where my friends and I tell real-world stories of other-world magic. My name is Peyton, and I'm into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Um, and my name is Peyton Turner, and I'm into it. And so is my guest today, Robin O'Brien. And I almost called you Robin McCord because I'm so used to calling you Robin McCord, but it's Robin O'Brien. So welcome today to the podcast. Oh, so much fun to be with you, Peyton. Oh, I'm just, I have been looking forward to this for so long. And, um, you know, just a little bit about our connection. You know, we went to a really small liberal arts college together in Virginia. You are currently living in Boulder, but you're from Texas. I'm in Kentucky. And your younger sister and I were actually close friends. So I knew of you, um, but we didn't really talk a whole lot in college, but have reconnected um, over the past couple of years, which has been such a special um, connection and relationship for me. It's really special. I feel totally the same. Yeah. So I, I know a lot about what you do, but you and I have had conversations that have been more kind of like personal, private conversations, not like my name is Robin and this is what I do. So I guess um, let's just start by um, tell us what, where, where you've been and what you're up to. Yeah. I mean, I really, I think I'm grateful because the way that we were brought back together, you know, clearly was sort of this growth trajectory that if, Anybody had asked us 30 years ago if we would be doing that. I don't think either one of us would have anticipated it. But, you know, my work has been in reforming the food system here in the U.S. pretty much my entire career. Um, I'm named after a farmer in New Zealand. And I grew up in Houston, like you mentioned. My dad's from the U.S. My mom is from New Zealand. And, you know, as I look back on my life, I realized that these chapters were actually unfolding. I just didn't really see it quite yet. Mm -hmm. And this theme of food has forever been part of my story. Named after this farmer in New Zealand, she is a sheep farmer. Her husband died when she was 42. So she took over running the farm with her three daughters. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. One of her daughters was diagnosed with breast cancer. So there was that in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then I grew up in Houston, which, you know, doesn't, we didn't have any conversations about environmental awareness. You know, I wasn't raised to recycle anything. So when we moved to Boulder 21 years ago, it really was like going from earth to Mars. I felt like I had landed on a different planet, you know, landing in this town that is so dialed in environmentally. I really was, you know, there was all the kind of like hippie stigma and, you know, learning about organic and the kids would go to preschool and they weren't allowed to put certain things in their lunchbox and it had to be cloth napkins. And it just, you know, I was just like, what, what is going on? And um, we had four kids really quickly. And when our fourth child was diagnosed with food allergies, I was really trying to unpack what had made her so sick. And when I had been working in Houston in a, in a finance you know, position, I had covered the food industry just as an analyst. And I tell people like, I love that job because it was so black and white, like your heart wasn't involved at all. And that, that felt safe and great. And I really liked it that way. And still to this day, I will tell people that I love that job. What I loved about that job was I worked with just the most amazing guys and they were like brothers. And so they kind of wrapped around you in this incredibly supportive way. Um, but as far as analyzing the food industry, it was a really unemotional attachment. And then, you know, through food allergies, I really kind of started to re-examine our food system and what was happening to the health of American children. And so it began this massive period of growth. And um, 
learning how to take this really formal training that I had had from business school and working in the finance world, marrying it with being a mother of four, Mm -hmm. and then articulating it in a way that made sense to people. It was grounded. It wasn't overly emotional. It was balanced and it was data-driven so that we could start to reform the system and reform these companies and create change. So the early years of the work were just enormously isolating, like punishingly isolating. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a place like that, you either either completely disintegrate or you, you, you deconstruct and rebuild. And the love that I had for children, my children, and knowing this was happening to so many children, disintegration wasn't an option. And so I had to somehow deconstruct. And then I'll tell people, I felt like I literally was rebuilding myself, you know, as a 35 year old, instead of just what I had inherited those first 35 years, very deliberately putting these building blocks that, that are, that became me now, Mm -hmm. you know, back together. And um, not a lot of people do that. And so, you know, there was just this very extended period of isolation. And then once you start to really, really own that vulnerability and that process, other people that are owning the process, it just like magnetizes you to each other. And so for me, the work's been amazing and the validation through the food industry has been amazing. And the work we're now doing with Replant Capital is amazing. But the thing I am the most grateful for is the family that I found in the process. And so I look back, it's so strange to like, I think it was 10 years ago this week that I gave a TED talk that changed my life completely. Oh, that was 10 years ago this week. And it's like, you know, the, the friends that came into my life because I was brave enough to do that. I mean, it's just like, they are part of who I am. They're part of my heart. And I, I, I don't have words to convey the gratitude for that. So, I, you know, people will often say like your book came out. It's amazing. It's sort of this expose on the food system what happened after the book? And that's the book I really want to write is what is the, what happened after? Yeah. What happened after the book, you know, it it was the deconstruction and the reconstruction of self and, you know, the courage that it takes to step into that. And then the grace that comes around you when you really do. And, you know, that for me, as hard as it was, and I think, you know, it's also why I'm so, I I just feel so much joy in, in the work today is because it was so lonely, you know, and it was so hard in that isolation that now to be doing it with all of these people, I just, I feel so lucky. You know, it's really interesting. So as you're telling your story, um, what I'm seeing is, you in the corporate world, in the finance world, which you had prepared your whole life for. Um, And it was, you know, a job that was, you know, societally. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a big deal. You know, it was a big deal out of business school. I was the only woman on the team. It was a big deal. We were all like in suits and pantyhose. And, you know, you as a woman, you were just kind of, you manned up. Yeah. And, um, and, And what I loved about those guys is even then, even in that, that expectation then of really manning up, um, I always, they always felt like brothers. They always took af- looked after me like a sister. Um, and I'm really grateful for that because, you know, even in, in a corporate gig, there was such a humanity to our team mm-hmm. and we're all still really close. Well, and so, and I love that. I love that. And I love this. So there's so many things that are coming in for me right now. And I want to, I want to take one piece of, of what you just said, which is, 
um, the, the women feeling like when they're in a corporate world and playing with the boys that we have to man up. So I want to like, you and I've had some recent conversations that I'd like to kind of table for later, but what, but what I want to come back to is, so, so here you are, um, you're in a very data driven job. It's very black and white. Um, but you feel incredibly supported and you feel like you're on a team. And so you've, you, you've got that kind of camaraderie. You, you're not alone. You're like you are part of a team. Mm-hmm. And these guys, you know, thankfully were in a place where they made you part of their team, even though you were the only woman there. Um, but there, but you said there wasn't any emotion to it. And then something changed. And then you went from that environment into an environment where emotion was the driving force. Yeah. And I think I will tell people the first part of my life, I was so afraid of heartbreak to the point that I think I probably wasn't as good of a sister or a friend as I could have been, because I think I was always protecting myself from heartbreak. You know, I think it was my ultimate, um, I was just so afraid of it. And when Tori was diagnosed with food allergies and I was spun into this isolation and really most people that were close to me in my life stepped way back. Like I'm not, I'm not touching this. They don't want to touch it. You know, I mean, we were, I was challenging some of the world's largest multinational chemical companies and most people stepped back. Um, It was heartbreaking, completely heart shattering breaking. And the thing I feared the most was happening and I couldn't control it. And I remember feeling like I was falling through a well And I was going through all these emotions and it was just fear and sadness and grief and isolation and rage and anger. And when I finally landed, like just out of just the exhaustion of going through just all of these emotions, I landed and I just remember feeling like I was curled up in like a fetal position. And I thought, you know, the reason I feel all these things is because I love. And once I saw those emotions Mm-hmm. as love-driven emotions and not just fear and not just anger and not just hate because there's plenty of that in the world but the reason you fear is because you love and the reason you hate is because you love and the reason you grieve like and so you understand that love is behind all of this and all of a sudden I was like gosh you know the thing I feared the most of heartbreak was actually the thing that had to happen for me to love in the way I need to love and I, you know, it, it makes sense now. I, I look at the relationships that, that have come into my life in the last decade. And it's totally because I, I come from such an open hearted place. And I, I tell people, I'm like, your heart actually has to break to make room for everything that's meant to fit inside. And for the first half of my life, you know, my, my work was to try to somehow prevent that from happening. What's well, interesting because it was to prevent it from happening, but you're surrounding yourself in this boys club, right? So you're very, you've got this very, like, very well constructed world um, in which everything fits right into place. And even you're comfortable in the place where you are. And if you don't have to feel and you can just be one of the boys, but you used to, you know, and, and you can just be black and white and data driven, you know, that everything's going to be fine. And then boom, something happens and you get catapulted out of that safe space into complete unknown. And knowing a little bit about you and, and having, you know, read some of your stuff, that event was that your daughter had an allergic reaction to food. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, emotion kicks in and 
tell me what that was like. Like, what was the change? Like, did you left your corporate job and you went on this mission for no? So it wasn't quite as fluid as that. So I was pregnant with our first child, and my husband got an offer in Colorado. And as unemotional as the finance gig was, the most emotional day was the day I quit that job. Mm. And it was a month after my daughter had been born. And I went back into the guys and I said, you know, we're moving to Colorado and basically I need to quit. And we were on a trajectory that was tremendous. And one of my bosses said, you know, are you sure? Because you're leaving behind a huge opportunity. And I had always put family first. I was raised to put family first. And I mean, I just, I completely cracked because I loved that team. It was an amazing team. And the way that they took care of me and the way I was learning, you know, as a young person coming into the field for the first time. So we moved to Colorado and I had one phone number. Um, My husband, you know, went off to work with this job. So I was leaving my family, everything familiar in my hometown, a career that I loved, a job that I loved, a team that I loved. And I was plunked into Boulder, basically not knowing a soul. And I would put my baby in this Bjorn and just hike. And Boulder is so beautiful. And Houston is not a beautiful place. And so I just thought, you know, I'm going to love it for what it is. And how can I be sad going out on these hikes? And um, early on, I really always, and I still do, feel like the mountains here, we just have these flat irons right along, right beside us every day. And they just feel like an altar to me Mm -hmm. and they always do. And so if I'm having a great day, there's the altar. If I'm having a terrible day, there's the altar. And it's just so expansive and such a reminder that we're only in this one place and that everything is still open to us. Mm -hmm. And I really leaned into that when we first moved out here. And then, you know, I was having the kids really quickly. Um, I really wanted to get through that stage so I could get back to work. I was staying in touch with the guys. You know, I thought one of them was from Colorado. He and his wife were talking about moving back out. So we were discussing what that would look like. And so, you know, it was really still like in the game. And um, and then, yeah, Tori had this allergic reaction. And all of a sudden, you know, it was so humbling because I had done all these amazing academic things. You know, I was in business school on a full scholarship. I had done a Fulbright, you know, I graduated top of class in college. And, you know, I just thought like, none of this matters. I don't know how to take care of this kid. Mm. And I had to sort of take the student that I had always been and really channel it into this space Mm. of how do I deal with this condition and how do I take care of my kid? And as I was doing that, I was, I thought, you know, wow, this is actually, this is teachable. And I knew there were other people struggling and, you know, it then began sort of the next, um, the evolution into, you know, what, what could I do here now in this stage to help? And it was partly to help my own child because, you know, her three older siblings couldn't read. And so they could accidentally give her something. And then I realized like, I wasn't the only one with that situation. So how could I help, you know, other families? So I created the Allergy Kids Foundation um, to really kind of help create this awareness and make clean and safe food affordable and accessible. And I, people, you know, ask what my mission is still today. I, I, it is still now through Replant Capital, working with these multinationals to make clean and safe food affordable and accessible. And um, I believe it's a, it's a human rights issue. So in those early years in Boulder, you know, I was just home with the kids and then I just kept getting pulled into bigger and bigger work. Mm-hmm. And um, it just was just, you know, learning, learning where to say no so that I could say yes mm-hmm. to the right things. Yeah. 
Oh, I love that. There's a, there's a saying that, uh, that we have and um, some of the, my yoga instructors from the Baptist community, that's when you're, when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was 10 years ago this week, my first um, Ted talk. And it was also, it's 10 years this year uh, for yoga. And, um, you know, I had always been a runner and everything had always been like this energy, like, you know, and people would say you should do yoga. And I was like, Oh God, that just sounds painfully awful. And, um, I hurt my ankle and a friend made me go with her and beginning of class, we got into child's pose and it hurt. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, like this hurts from the start. What am I doing here? And I need to be here, you know? Yeah. And, um, I realize now like how much of a role that played in me building my own strength to then hold the space I needed to hold for myself and also hold the space for other women that mm-hmm. are coming in, you know, into the work as well. I didn't have any female mentors. And um, so part of, you know, what I really am so focused on is how I can support other women coming in yeah. and helping them dismantle and deconstruct some of these pieces that get in the way and, you know, um, you talk, talk about your own, talk about your own dismantling, because you, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, we're bringing it up again. And I want to give you an image. And this, this came in for me, this is not one of the readings that I got for you. But I was, I went on my walk today, and I was thinking of um, this concept of duality and this concept of we, we like to classify things as either good or bad. And I've really been playing around with Um, There really is, you know, it's the Shakespeare quote, nothing is either good nor bad until thinking makes it so. So there's just, there is no good or bad. There just is. Right. Then I thought, okay, well, if you don't want to call it good or bad, then what what can we call it? And I had this image of, well, there's just constriction and then expansion. And this is something that happens over and over again um, when you're on a spiritual path, this, this constriction and then the expansion that comes after and then constriction and then expansion. And so how does that apply for you? Like when you're thinking the concept of constriction and then expansion, and then also the dismantling that you've spoken of twice now. So can you explain what that? Yeah. So, so for me, where I, where I go with that line of thinking is that duality of failure and success. And, and really to me, it's experience. So it's not good or bad. It's experience. It's not failure or success. It's experience. And once you hold it as experience, um, it, it takes the, the permission and punishment stuff out of the equation. And I think for me, the only failure would have been like, if I didn't get up again, because there have been so many things, so many people really close to me who tried to sort of dismiss it or marginalize it or stop it out of their own fear for my safety or, you know, like the motives weren't necessarily evil or bad or horrible. It just, for whatever reason, there are a lot of people that have tried to stop me for all their own different reasons. And to me, the failure would have been actually stopping, you know, and there have been so many lessons learned in the experience. And so I don't even think of them as failures anymore. And once you don't think of them as failures, you're not afraid to try because then you're like, well, if this works or it doesn't work, I'm going to learn a ton anyway. And reframing failure as as just lessons and experience was that was game changing for me and then you know one of the lessons that i teach my kids is there are no good or bad emotions exactly like shakespeare was saying you know to label them as good or bad Mm -hmm. just it it, it's it's not helpful 
-hmm. And really there are lessons in emotions and that the emotions aren't good or bad. However, what you choose to do with those emotions and how you choose to act on emotions, that can have a good or bad consequence, but the emotion itself isn't good or bad. I mean, grief serves a really important role in our lives and sadness and, and anger. It helps you unpack that whatever is beneath it. Yeah. Um, so I really have tried to emphasize to my kids, especially as teenagers, you know, like that don't label emotions or good or bad. Like you need to have the full spectrum. And, um, and so as I moved into that, you know, I think the dismantling was here was a food system that I just trusted yeah. and believed was built in a way that made sure everything was going to be okay and safe for everybody. And then to realize that through these federal agencies, um, there's a lack of funding. And then, you know, importantly, this double standard where our own American food companies were making products with a lot of artificial, potentially harmful ingredients here, and then making that exact same granola bar or cereal or whatever with real ingredients overseas. And so that double standard was just universally offensive. And um, as I really started to understand that system, I, I, the question that came to my mind was, well, what other systems, you know, and what other institutions have I just blindly followed and believed? And where else are there shortcomings that I didn't see before? Mm -hmm. And things like our education system and the education that I got in the South that told a very neat and tidy story. Mm -hmm. And as my youngest child pointed out, you know, when you study Martin Luther King in school, mom, those, those photographs are in black and white as if it was some long time ago. But he's the same age as Chucky and Roro, and we've got the grandparents, and we've got all those photos in colors. So she said, are they trying to make it seem like it was a long time ago by putting the photos in black and white? Oh and so God. I never thought about that. That's amazing. Really revisiting um, systems. <laughs> and as I revisited, you know, institutions and systems, the institution of marriage, you know, yeah. why has it been constructed this way? And what are the benefits to society? What are the control mechanisms that are here? Why? Mm -hmm. You know, the education, why is it constructed this way? Our education system is constructed on the farm calendar because originally the kids in the summertime would be off for three months to go and work the farm. Well, if you go to New Zealand or other countries, they're kind of in, they're in school all year and they kind of have these two week, three week chunks all through the year. So there's incredible continuity to a school system. And it actually proves out, you know, that those kids perform better in school. So it was really looking at all of these systems and that's a lot to do. And um, I- well, There are people that are deep rooted in those systems that are benefiting from them. And so as somebody coming in like you with questioning eyes um, and inquiring minds, you get a lot of pushback. And a great education, you know, that was very um, reputable. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like I was coming at it from some, you know, I, I mean, some, some incredibly- alternative space. And that was what challenged the multinationals the most mm -hmm. was, you know, I would be scheduled to appear on major national news shows and like minutes before we were supposed to go live, they, it would get cut. And one of my friends once said, he said, you know, Robin is because, you know, they want to put someone on to debate, you know, that has, you know, all this like purple hair and nose rings, but and then just dismiss it as some alternative, you know, thing. And you come in from this very centered place and they, they would rather not debate you. And so um, I kept showing up for these debates and they kept not showing up. Mm. 
And once you start to move through that, then you're like, okay, just keep, that's part of the game. You just got to keep showing up. And I think, you know, one of the things that we tend not to do as women is we put our needs kind of like, well, I'll take care of this later. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned that part of my job was I had to keep this vessel that I am in in incredible condition and shape to be able to handle the stress of these seas that I'm on. And, and I, you know, it's mellowed out now, like it's, it's, and it's in a different place now, but like, I truly felt like I was just on this, like really angry sea, mm-hmm. you know, getting tossed and turned. And I never knew like where I would see, you know, help and where I would just be sort of on my own. And so I learned, you know, really I had to learn how to take care of my own system and, you can't do that unless you actually value who you are and why you're here. And so, so much of the work that I do now is helping, helping people explore that Mm -hmm. to really, you know, how important it is to give yourself the space to listen and hear and understand what it is you're actually here to do because we're all here. Like we were put here, which means there is something you're here to do. And, um, and it's been, it's been, you know, it's been really interesting because for my friends that are all doing, doing their things, um, I love them. I mean, they're like family. It's like you, it's like you find somebody and you're like, it's like, it's a sisterhood, you know? Um, And even with the guys that are, you know, doing it, I mean, some of the best work that I've done has been with a guy that really has moved into that place. And you have that masculine and feminine energy pulling on each other to pull the best forward, you know, so it's not that it's just a female thing. But um, yeah, it's really, I think, you know, you have, you know, to learn, to learn how to value yourself, and why you're valuing yourself so that you really can take care of yourself to do this bigger work is actually also part of the work. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, and it's, it's so hard too, when you're getting hit from a thousand different directions and, and really the earth. And I love the, the image that you gave of the tumultuous seas. It's like, you're getting thrashed around. And, you know, I, I had the, I, this thought earlier today, you know, this, this whole podcast is about intuition and how, you know, some of the guests on my, on my show are people who are practicing intuitives, mediums, psychics, and the such. And some of um, the guests are people who um, just have a really good, um, a really good, they're really in touch with their own intuition. And, and so when I was thinking about interviewing you today, I'm like, okay, well, what, what does it take to be on a spiritual path? And so you may not, you Robin may not define your path as a quote, spiritual path, like a medium or a psychic might, but I see you as being on a spiritual path. And so what is that? Well, a spiritual path really is one where you understand that faith and surrender are the things that are necessary to get you through. Oh, I mean, this morning I was thinking if I ever got a tattoo, it would be the word faith. Okay. Yes. And I was interviewed by the team that did the Enron movie, however many years ago. And they asked what got you through. And I said, faith. Yeah, no, it's a very spiritual path. So speak to that. Is there a specific, can you tell like to highlight like your faith and I'm going to say your faith is your intuition. Like, is there a specific moment that really highlights that where you really truly had to tap in and listen to your own inner guidance to be able to get through? Oh gosh. I mean, so many times, you know, the way I picture it now is 
when I'm struggling, because you're still struggling. I mean, you don't suddenly like, whew, you know, you're through these problems, like we're human. Right. And when I'm struggling, the way I hold it is I picture like, and it's always late at night and I'll be laying in bed and I just picture my heart opening to whatever it is that's above, whatever you believe, whatever that is, to really guide me to the lesson because it's hard. Like when you're in there and you're like in that tense place, the, you know, constriction that you mentioned, it's like, Oh God, you know, what are we supposed to be figuring out? And like, you can't figure it out if you're fighting it. And so, you know, I learned you have to really like expose yourself and be open. And my prayer is always, you know, help me through to the solution as quickly as possible. I'm still human. And I've taught the kids the same thing. I'm like, just say the prayer that you can like, you know, be guided to, to the answer guided through it you know mm -hmm. and um i think in a society where we're taught to numb that feeling mm -hmm. um we numb it through all kinds of things you know it's we numb it through food we numb it through alcohol we numb it through drugs shopping sex whatever it is you know um again you know what i teach people is sit with it it's not yeah. the emotion is not going to kill you the emotion is not going to kill you yes sit with it and try to feel what it's trying to teach you. And um, that's where I've really learned, you know, I think there've been just different, I, I can't, it just happened so many times. So for me, it's, I need to shut my computer, unplug and go on a trail mm -hmm. and just be, and, or I need to go swim and just be, you know, and be in a place where there is nothing coming at me, nothing. And I can just be, and um, I've always been a runner. So that's, you know, that's another place where so much unleashes mm -hmm. um, creates creatively. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's really learning how to deal with the knots that we can get tied up in mm -hmm. and sitting with them so that they relax and you can untie the knot and move into the next thing. Some are way harder than others. Well, and I think the the background that you and I have of the um, the way in which we were raised and the the kind of really high academia, high achieving, high expectations. Um, we want to we want to look at the knot. And we want to start untying it as quickly as we can. You know, we want to use all of our tools and figure it out and give me more data. And if I could just do the knot, like how the knot get here? You know, who tied the knot? Who was you know? And there is there is something to be said for just. I love that image of just sitting back and opening the heart space and just setting the knot aside and being like, okay, there's a knot. Yeah. And I just, I think my greatest, greatest lessons and the wisdom I hold now has come through the hardest times. Hasn't come through the great times. Doesn't it though? It's like, and now you've done it. Like, just like you said, you've done it so much. Like we felt that constriction, that nodding, that it feels like, oh my God, this is insurmountable. It ha it's happened so many times that now when it happens, I'm like, okay, there's something beautiful on the other side of this. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, And I think, you know, the other thing that, that I learned in the work was fear is so constricting. Mm -hmm. and, um, it, it like, it's like a safety belt. It just like locks you into your comfort zone. Yes. And now, and I've, I've, you know, I've taught this too. It's like, when I feel that fear coming in, it's like that seatbelt locking me in. It's like, oh, hey, you know, there you are. And you can like, if you can identify it and just see it, okay, you're here, you know, this is like a, a, a dashboard and it's one of my warning lights saying, okay, yep. yeah, there you are. And, um, 
And again, it's, it's it, by not labeling, labeling these emotions as, as good or bad. I mean, that exercise alone is a huge one. Yes. And once you see fear or once you feel hate or once you feel these things, you can say, okay, that's a, that's a warning light on my internal dashboard. Mm-hmm. What's it actually there telling me, you know? Yeah. And, and that really, um, yeah, I, I mean, I feel really grateful because I, d- I was not like this, you know, I was a type A, control, 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 control. And um, I realize now like how, how much I was missing, you know, how much, how much I was missing. So um, to, to give yourself permission to be in that vulnerability, like it's a really brave exercise, but that's where you find just this incredible depth um, and, and like purpose. Mm-hmm. And for that, I wouldn't trade anything. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I just see what, like where you've been. Um, well, and you know, Peyton, cause you, you're right. I mean, you know, the types of high schools that we went to and yeah. the college that we went to and to be smart enough to be able to play the game and check all the boxes and do all the right things. Like I was able to do that. The boys and, you know, I love the thing that I wanted to come back to that we talked about at the beginning is you and I had a text conversation the other day um, regarding some of the women farmers with whom you're working. And there was something that you said that just changed the game for me. And I think about the history of women. Um, and I feel like, you know, paying homage to the Gloria Steinems of the world who really truly were fighting for women's rights and women's equality. And it was loud and hear me roar. And, and, you know, we deserve, we deserve, we deserve all this kind of stuff. Now, after this conversation that you and I had the other day, it's like, and there's a softening. Mm-hmm. Like now we can come back into the softening of the divine feminine. And I know that sounds really woo-woo and out there and like new age, but. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I, it's why so, are we even fighting? Like why? No, just, we're, and it's like men and women are designed so differently, you know? And I think about our bodies as women and my capacity to like carry these four human beings and put them on the planet. So literally like deliver these kids and like put them on the planet. And they're all, four of them are huger than me now, you know? And I look at them sometimes and I'm just in awe of that, yeah. you know, of, of, of literally what women are able to do. And I think about, you know, I, I just, it, it, to honor the similarities and to honor the differences yeah. and that my greatest power is how I show up in this world as a woman. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I wasn't supposed to be trying to be the most manly version of a woman, you know, in a man's world. It's really sort of saying, you know, we are still operating in a largely male dominated world. And there is the power that we hold as women, mm-hmm. most notably, because every single person that exists on this planet is here because a woman was strong enough to deliver that person. So literally everyone on the planet (laughs) is here because of the strength of women. If we owned that power alone, it would be game changing. And the thing that I've seen in my work and I see in organizations and I'm hugely involved in is governance because what we're seeing is, and it's in the data, is that if there is a balance on boards legislatively anywhere, with men and women, and you bring in the diversity that is actually representative of what our country looks like, it is so much more effective. It's amazing. And, you know, I think having women on boards, you know, having women in governance, it's, it's huge. And not because they can be like the men because they can stand shoulder to shoulder with them. And they come with a different life experience, you know, yeah, a different life experience. And, and so yeah. 
when you bring that diversity of life experience into an organization, the organization is better for it. Yes. And in the food industry, it's a great example because, you know, they don't have enough diversity on their boards. And so their sales growth sort of starts to stall out. Well, because it's like, how are you going to sell into a community that you don't have any idea how that works? Mm -hmm. No idea. So bring in the young black guy that can say, you know what, this is, this is, the insight that I have and bring in the Asian Americans and bring in that diversity so that you're informed because you don't know what you don't know. I mean, you and I are great examples of that. You know, we had this, this amazing, you know, reputable education and still, you know, that, that awakening that happens where you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't <laughs> know that I didn't know this. Yeah. And I think yeah, yeah. Um, there's a humility that can be in the not knowing, but there's also the flip side of that is the arrogance that can be in the ignorance. And so you have a path you can choose. You can choose arrogance and ignorance, or you can choose a real humility. And yeah. I love being a student. I'm going to be a student until I check out, you know? So to me that it's, it's exciting. Well, that's funny that you say that because, um, okay. So that makes sense with one of the images that I got for you. So we're, we're going to go into the part of the podcast, which is super fun and always a little terrifying for me, but spirit has never let me down. So this is where I, with your permission, kind of tuned into your energy earlier today and came up with um, three images that from spirit um, to discuss with you right now. And these are designed to be basically gifts right? Okay. Um, I've never done this either. So it's um, so fun. And you know, I tune in in lots of different ways. Uh, normally, I'll just sit down and get really quiet and then just listen and, and, and look. Um, but today I went for we got a lot of snow here last night. And I went for a walk by myself. I, I didn't have the dog with me. And I gave permission to let messages start to come on my walk. And of course, I got all of them for you while I was out in the snow. And I'm like, well, that's perfect. I wonder if she's actually out walking in the snow right now. Um, but the first thing and I, the first image that I got, um, and I have to qualify this by saying after this image came in for me, I remembered that yesterday when I went for a walk, I saw a black bird sitting on a limb of a tree. And we don't have a whole lot of black birds around here that aren't crows. So this was a different than a crow. It was this little tiny black bird. It was absolutely gorgeous. And it was just by himself. So I didn't even, that wasn't even on my radar until after I saw this image and I was walking and I, I just, I heard, started to hear the song Blackbird by the Beatles. And I had this image of you playing it on your guitar. It was almost like I was looking through, I was almost looking at an Instagram reel where you went to press play and then you, you were singing and playing the song on an Instagram feed as a gift to your followers. Right. And it was, and I could see it so freaking clearly, Robin. And there was some real um, vulnerability because this was like you stepping out of your norm for the world that you are in. Uh, I know that you are a singer and I know that you're very musical, but there was something about you recording you singing this song and posting it on Instagram or somewhere sharing it. And the song particularly had a lot of meaning. So I don't know if that song for you has a lot of meaning or if that's something that you have been thinking about or what, but. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, when I said like my, my namesake is a farmer, you know, and mm -hmm. I realized now like my life had these different chapters. The band that I sang with in college was called Lost in the Supermarket. And the choir director that we had in college, his name was Dr. Spice. And <laughs> Now, one of the guys that I work with, he's a total musician, like really into it. 
And one of the things that I have been wanting to get back to as the kids go off to college, and I, it, made, it made me reflect on my own mother, who when I left for college started taking art classes and she never had, and she's an amazing artist, but we had no idea because she didn't have time. And then all of a sudden, like, she started doing these classes, she met this whole other group of friends. It's been so cool to watch her do that. And really, you know, I was telling my oldest child the other day, I said, you know, I had her and she wanted to do voice lessons. She has an amazing voice. And so she worked with this voice teacher, you know, all through high school. And I told her the other day, I said, I kind of want to call Amy and, and sing again, you know, because music has always been part of my life. And when the kids were little, I always sang to them. And then, yeah, I got a guitar. Um, I don't know, it was probably five or six years ago. It's actually the same guitar I had in college, but I just actually lent it out to my sister. Mm-hmm. And I called her and I was like, can I get that back? You know, <laughs> I, I need to like figure it out again. And what was so interesting with the guitar was that I was so, again, controlled. When I was trying to learn it in college, I was too controlled. I was too like tight about it, you know? And then after having grown through all of this experience, when I picked it up again, it felt totally, totally different, you know, and I could just relax into it. But the song that I sing, the one that has the most meaning to me that another friend who I've actually never met sent it to me one day. And she just said, I think of you every time I hear the song is a song called up to the mountain. Mm-hmm. And it's Martin Luther King's lap, the words from his last speech. Mm-hmm. And, um, it is truly like when I need to find that quiet place, that is what I do. I will pick up the guitar and just last week, I, I ordered another baby guitar. Um, so I think music is coming in the next chapter. I think an Instagram post is um, should be on the way. And it's funny that that Martin Luther King, the, the song that you love is a Martin Luther King because the song Blackbird that the Beatles wrote was written um, after the Beatles came to America during um, the um, civil unrest in Martin Luther King times. Martin Luther King. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, so there's a real civil rights commonality um, to the yeah. song that you love to play and then the song that I heard. Well, and when I was studying, you know, um, communication styles, because when I was unearthing this information, I was like, wow, how I communicate this is going to make or break it. People are either going to think I'm crazy or it's going to get through. Mm-hmm. So I studied all of these amazing speakers and which ones had sort of kept a really narrow audience and which had really like blown something open. I studied Al Gore and and Inconvenient Truth. And, you know, I felt that, I I really think that was what he was meant to do. You know, he was was amazing articulating that in the film, but then he sort of dropped you because he didn't provide solutions that that inspired you and helped lift you out of the despair. And so I thought, I can't do that. If I'm going to tell people how messed up this is, I have to also give them solutions that empower them and help lift them out of the despair. And then I studied Martin Luther King and I realized that, he was able to mobilize around that movement through love. And so a lot of the understanding I had come through of love as this force, you know, I realized love is the force. And so that incorporated into so much of how I communicate. And then the other one that I studied was Harvey Milk. And (laughs) as he was really advancing um, gay rights, he used gratitude and he would thank people for taking the time out of their day to come and hear him speak. And so I thought, you know, if I can use love, and gratitude and solutions. Um, and I forever have incorporated that into my public speaking. Yeah, I love it. The next um, image that I got um, was I saw this grizzly bear roaring 
this huge, and I was very specific, like, is this a black bear or a grizzly bear? It was a huge grizzly bear roaring with like the slobber coming out of his mouth and everything. And then it stopped roaring and got really quiet and held out its paw and there was a red apple in its paw. And then I saw grizzly cubs and I realized that it was a mama bear holding a red apple. And um, the red apple I felt was symbolic of education. And there was something about the duality between at first, like to get the attention, it was through a roar, but it was almost like the redness of the apple was a better way to get attention. So I'm not sure if that, like how that lands for you. Um, I, mean, I think the mama bear, that, that image, people have used that with my work all the way through. Mm. Um, and I mean, the apple, the apple to me is New Zealand, you know, oh, New Zealand and it's, they're everywhere. And, um, that's the apple. That's the first thing I thought of, you know, like Costco, when they first were exporting stuff out of New Zealand, it was apples. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a gentle gift, you know, it's always been sort of recognized as this gentle gift and gesture mm -hmm. um, and nourishing, you know, whether you're feeding it to like a, a horse or yeah. a child. Um, but yeah, no, that's funny. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought of was New Zealand. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and that's someplace where you're like your heart is in New Zealand. Well, and I think, you know, again, like they've had three female prime ministers, um, the grace and the strength that Jacinda Ardern is leading with. Mm -hmm. And it's not that she's perfect, and it's not that the opposition on the other side of the political aisle, you know, like it's just still politics. Yeah. But there is an empathy and a grace and a compassion in her leadership that I think the world really needs. Mm -hmm. and, you know, people ask me a lot, like, would you work in government? And I would never run for office. I don't want to, I don't want to put my, myself and my family and my extended family through that kind of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. um, if I was appointed to something, you know, I would do it, but I always joke, like if she ever called and said, Hey, will you come help us figure out our agricultural systems? I would be on the next plane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I <laughs> love that. There, yeah, the, the, the apple, it was like the education was the key to that. And I think that that's, I yeah. think, I mean, so much of my work has been education and it's, um, it's, it's been, you know, again, like from a place of this knowledge is such a gift and mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to feel badly about it or, or feel stupid or punished. And, you know, some people that you and I know, they're not ready for the gift. They don't want to hear it yet. And so I just think about it as truly like a gift. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just put it up on the shelf over here. Yeah. And, wait. and then when they're ready, because they always come back. And I've learned that in my work. Like they will always come back when they're ready. Then you take the gift off the shelf and say, come yeah. here. I love that. The knowledge, the experience, everything is, it's such a gift. And to hold it in that capacity, um, I've always held it in that capacity. When I do my public speaking, that's how I speak. It's like this, I'm, this is just such a gift. And when I sang always, I always felt like it was a gift. And so the, the extending out this gift. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's really how I work. Awesome. And then this is, <laughs> uh, so I, when I was on my walk, I, I, I was at a place where I was crossing over a stream and the shape of the stream I don't know if you've ever played Oregon Trail, like the new edition, like the card game. 
Um, but the shape of the stream that I was physically crossing over looked <laughs> looked like one of the cards from the Oregon Trail card game. And we were playing. I have to check it out. I haven't seen it. Well, we were playing this um, over the holidays um, with um, my partner and his kids. Um, but as soon as I saw that, I heard you died of dysentery. <laughs> and I thought and I said, all right, you guys, like, is this message really for Robin? Like, is this, am I supposed to say this? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, like, I don't know. And, and so I don't know if here again, here's the thing about spirit. Like I might say this to you now and then tomorrow your kid will come home and be like, oh my God, mom, have you ever heard of the Oregon trail? And it'll be this big joke. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll have to look, I don't know any of that. You know, I do know that part of the work that I still want to do is going around the world and meeting with female farmers because I think they hold so much knowledge and wisdom. So if I die of dysentery at 85 because I've been <laughs> on the farm somewhere, I don't know. Maybe I do. I mean, I'm not afraid of dying. So it doesn't freak me out that that was a thing. And I think, you know, I so believe in experience and adventure. Yeah. And, um, you know, just... Yeah. Whatever I was saying, I don't know, but um, it doesn't intimidate me. And I think like there are just chapters in your life. And for this most recent chapter of raising children, especially high school kids that are just insanely busy with all of their activities and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's um, haven't, we haven't had the same kind of flexibility and especially in this last year. Yeah. I do miss international travel so much and I miss, um, being in those very remote places, you yeah. know, so it doesn't, it doesn't intimidate me. That's, it's kind of funny, but yeah. yeah and it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, if you've played the game, it's like, Oh crap, all this work. And I died of dysentery, you know, oh, that's like, in the game. Like a funny, yeah. Oh yeah. It's a game. It's the whole Oregon trail game is, is you, it's like, you're like in a wagon trying to get out West to, for goal. Like it's the Oregon trail and like, it's a team approach um, to getting the wagon out there. And, you know, if you don't take care of each other, then somebody dies of dysentery, you know, <laughs> or, you know, something along those lines. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I could see, so another angle on that would be like, and I think this is important too, is making sure you're surrounded by people that are going to take care of you. Yeah. You no, know? it's so important in this line and, of work. And I think, um, like in my experience, some of the people that, that are the closest, that can be the hardest, especially as you grow. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think you sort of have this, like there's guilt in the sort of growth beyond and then the betrayal that you can feel in that. And I mean, maybe that's the lesson there is, you know, yeah, yeah the if you don't surround yourself with people that will take care of you, you know, during the hard times. Yeah. yeah. Even when you have dysentery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't well, have to die of dysentery, you know, no, like you can get it. Well, Robin, we're almost, uh, we're almost about um, complete with the podcast. Is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners? Oh, I just, I think, I, I think be as kind to yourself as you are to the people you love the most. Be as kind to yourself as you would be to a a little girl or a little boy, you know, be as kind to yourself as you would be to your best friend. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a, that's a, 
we don't give ourselves permission to do that. We are so hard on ourselves. And once you can hold yourself with that kind of kindness and compassion, you have so much more of it to give. And, um, I, you know, I just, I, I see the world we're in and the tension and the hate and the, and the constriction. And, you know, I just, I hope to be a light and, you know, what I need to do, and I've learned what I need to do to take care of that light. And um, so much of that is being able to, to, to literally give yourself what you need. And I think as women in a society that conditions us to give and give and give, you know, all of a sudden you're sort of the giving tree stump and then you die of dysentery, you know? And so (laughs) I just, I think it's, to me, it's that it's, it's, we can be so hard on ourselves. We can be our own worst enemy and, you know, flip the script and, and really be your own best friend. And once you start to do that, like people just want to be around you in a different way. And then the people that want to be around you are people that, absolutely fill you up instead of drain you so um it's pretty life-changing but that that's what i would leave is is, you know give yourself that kind of kindness and compassion that you give to the people you love the most yeah i love that thank you so much robin well it's been so much fun peyton it's so great to see you and i know i feel like since you first came out to colorado a couple years ago um clearly was meant to be and I find these people kind of re-emerging in my life now. And it's really fun and really special because we do understand the sort of origin stories that we all come from. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to hold with all this grace, um, the incredible growth and evolution is so much fun to see in friends. Well, it's just been, um, it's been a really special connection for me to reconnect with you in a different way. Um, and from a place of, um, yeah, just a place of love. Yeah. So, well, I can't thank you enough. How can people get in touch with you? So you can find me at robinobrien.com. It's R-O-B-Y-N-O-B-R-I-E-N and then replantcap.com. And there we are working with farmers. And what we are seeing is that five times more women than men are going into regenerative agriculture because it is, it is healing the soil. Mm -hmm. It is taking care of water it is getting the chemicals out of our food system. And for women, it is just intuitive. And then our investor base is the same. It's predominantly females, just high net worth individuals, amazing women. Um, and some incredible guys too, but it's really been fascinating to see the role that women are playing in this movement. And it's incredibly collaborative and it's so much fun. So um, replantcap.com or robinobrien.com. Yeah, and I'll put that in the show notes. And um, wow, what a way to be the light. Thank you. What a way to be the light. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening today. Um, Again, my name is Peyton Turner, and this is my amazing friend and special guest, Robin O'Brien, and we are both into it.